It was inevitable, it was long in coming, and the plans for it had been finalized a long time ago. But yet, when it happened, there was an outpouring of grief and emotion. The longest reigning British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, died on Thursday, September the 8th, 2022, at the age of 96. What would be her most enduring legacy? And what can we look forward to as members of the Commonwealth and indeed as members of the world from the new monarch, King Charles III? Newsnight talks to the founder of the British Monarchist Society, Thomas Mace Archie Mills. Thomas Mace Archie Mills, thank you for your time. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. I hope you're well. I am, and I hope you are too. Yes, as, as well as we can be with the news that we've had. Indeed, indeed. We have a uh, stiff upper lip and we bear it. Indeed. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, the British are known for the stiff upper lip, but occasionally that lip drops, uh, as we have noticed uh, in the past couple of days. Where were you when the, when the news finally came through that uh, Her Majesty the Queen had died? It was ironic. I was actually on the terrace at Buckingham Palace having a cup of tea when they brought the announcement to Buckingham Palace gates. Uh, it, it was really quite surreal to actually be in one of the Queen's residences in her home uh, and being told that, uh, Thomas, you must finish your cup of tea. Uh, we've, we have some news for you. So it, it really was moving, it was touching, but it was historic. Not too many people would be able to say that they were at the Queen's residence when the announcement was made. Let's, uh, let's, let's look at the Queen and her legacy. Uh, of course, uh, this has been said repeatedly over the last couple of days, in fact, over the last couple of months, uh, ever since uh, she became uh, uh, 70 years on the throne way back in February. Uh, before uh, she then passed on in September. Uh, what, what do you think uh, of, of her reign? Um, only, I was reading just uh, ahead of this interview, only 8.6% uh, of Britons uh, are over 70 at the moment and have known any other monarch other than Elizabeth II. Yes, this is a reign that has spanned all of our lifetimes, uh, from my grandmother to my mother to myself, my mum and I were just speaking about it. She is the only sovereign that we have ever known. And in, in the case of the family and the world, actually, the family of the Commonwealth of Nations, there's so many that will only have known her. And her reign has been a success. It is an example. It is everything that is great and good about the unity and humanity of the world that was presented and put in front of us by Queen Elizabeth II. So this reign, it's not that she's the only one we've ever known. There are lessons, there are examples, there is so much that she has given all of us who, is made, who has made us who we are and what our nations are, and we have her to thank for. Uh, given the fact that she reigned for so long and saw so many people and, and had been uh, in charge of so much uh, within that period, what do you think uh, would be or uh, would have been uh, her impact on British public life first, before we even come to those from outside Britain? 
In terms of British life itself, public life itself, what has been the impact of Queen Elizabeth II? This woman has been there through everything that the world has thrown at us for the last 70 years, bringing us out of World War II, bringing us out of austerity, out of rationing. This is a woman who rolled up her sleeves and really got into the thick of it during the war, uh, learning how to fix jeeps and trucks and, and be a mechanic. But even so, after that, every disaster, every bit of celebration, every little bit of woven fabric that has told our story over the last 70 years has almost been stitched by her. Uh, she is the queen, well, she was the queen, she was the head of state, and she was the person that we looked to for everything. When you look at Britain around the world, you always think of the queen. Who better represents the British people? Who understands their people more than the queen? And the impact that she's had on all of us, whether we're older, we're younger, she has been there. She's been our constant, our rock. No matter when things were looking so bad, she would always address us. She would let us know that no matter how bleak things may look now, better times are ahead. And all of her speeches were like that, to bring her people together, to uplift all four corners of this United Kingdom, and to say, together, we will work through it. And that's what she means and meant to us. That's what she gave to public life, to everyone in Britain. The fact that her reign lasted for so long meant that she saw so many things, as you said, uh, so many eras and so many people, uh, American presidents. Uh, I mean, when she became uh, uh, the sovereign, Winston Churchill uh, uh, was prime minister. So, I mean, if you check it from then now all the way down to Liz Truss, I believe Liz Truss was her 15th uh, 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 prime minister uh, during the period of this uh, 70 years. How, what kind of lessons could you, do you think there are in how she managed to deal with all these people, uh, first in Britain and then internationally uh, with the likes of American presidents of different temperaments uh, uh, and then world leaders ranging from the likes of Idi Amin uh, to uh, uh, Jean Baudel Bacasa and all the others uh, from across the world. Was she, was she a diplomat without the training? Her Majesty did not have any formal education, and there wasn't really a guidebook thrown at her when her father died. Uh, this was learned from the institution. Everything that she has done, she learned the bits of the job, but actually had to make it her own. And she was very dependent on her first Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill. She cared very much for him because he was almost like a father figure. He knew the ins and outs of the Constitution. He knew what monarchy was. He was an ardent monarchist. And he felt also that his duty to the new queen was to stay on and guide and advise her, which he did. Uh, and then the queen took that information. As the prime ministers came, one after the other, you know, the queen stays, prime ministers come and go. So she learned, and she would always put that information somewhere handy and useful, because when she needed something in her mental filing cabinet, it was right there. And the Queen was sharp, she was witty, 
uh, for someone who didn't have formal training or formal education, she was quite astute in her, her duties, very well knowledgeable of her job, but more so about the place of politicians in the monarchical system. And as the prime minister, uh, a few, few prime ministers ago, uh, had said Theresa May just yesterday, when she would speak with Her Majesty, it wasn't some high and mighty monarch. It was a woman who was educated, who knew the ropes. And that, that speaks volumes about the abilities of Her Majesty the late Queen. And 70 years of dealing with not only prime ministers in the United Kingdom, but prime ministers of all of the realm nations of which she is head of state. And then when we look at the 14 American presidents on top of that, uh, especially the Kennedys, how fashionable they were back in the 60s. Uh, even when we looked at when Reagan visited in the 80s and riding horses at Windsor Castle. Uh, her most famous British prime minister really during the 80s was Margaret Thatcher. And that was uh, a little bit of hit and miss with their relationship. But it's very important that we highlight the relationship of Her Majesty with those leaders of the Commonwealth. And just to see how she was able to continue to build the organization from what it was, a small number of countries at the beginning, but not have a roadmap. When someone is building a home, you have blueprints, you have tools, you have everything as well as experience and knowledge to do that. When Her Majesty set out and built from, from just, I think it was seven or eight original Commonwealth nations, where was she going? What was the direction? She had an idea. She knew what she wanted to happen. She knew that a large organization was going to have problems. But being who she was, the person she was, and knowing that she wanted to be the person that could help others due to her Christian faith. She went blindly into building this organization. And when we look at the result of what was created with her guidance, there is so much there behind the scenes that we don't know about that led her to build one of the most fantastic organizations this world has ever seen. She there is a, there is something about the Commonwealth which quite a number of people will point out. There, there is this fascination about it, as you pointed out. And uh, I guess the Queen, of course, this being her idea uh, uh, in the aftermath of empire, it's gotten to the stage where even countries, I mean, the Commonwealth is supposed to be a club or group of former British colonies. But it has gotten to the stage where Countries that were not former British colonies want to join the Commonwealth. I, I remember that uh, 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 just a couple of months ago, Rwanda was admitted and hosted the last uh, Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. So does this speak to the endurance of that idea and the person behind it? 100%. I mean, and when Fiji came back just a few years ago, Her Majesty was delighted. Uh, she's always, in, in my opinion, I think she's always put the people of the Commonwealth a little bit ahead of those in the United Kingdom, which, very happy. But this is a, her legacy. This is what she built. She has left this world better than when she found it. And when we speak of legacy and that person, 
when you've created something so great that people see it as exclusive, when in fact the idea was not exclusive, it was an inclusive idea that Her Majesty had. We want everyone, despite the differences, no matter what their version of British history was, whether it was good, bad, questionable, we need to move forward. The world keeps turning, regardless of what happened in the past. And she was one that said, we must, for a better future, work together. And this is why we see countries that were not part of the British Empire at any point in time want to join, because there's strength, unity, and safety in numbers. And this is an organization unlike any other. So even though it was supposed to be inclusive, it actually is very exclusive. So uh, it's very interesting to see what it started as versus what it is now. And I hope that the Commonwealth will find a lot of safety in the new king and how he has already pledged his time, patience and love for the countries of this organization. The Queen's popularity during the course of her very long reign uh, tended to either quieten down or stave off those who wanted uh, republicanism in some of the former colonies and those who actually wanted to abolish the monarchy. Uh, those who were in favor of the monarchy, like yourself, could point at her as a good example of why it was necessary to keep the monarchs and to keep the monarchy. Um, how difficult is that, do you think, going to be to sustain in, uh, in the aftermath of her death, particularly because she was so popular within Britain and outside. This is very interesting because being born in a republic as I was, but really coming up in a monarch, I can see the benefits but the drawbacks of both systems. And I can hands down say that constitutional monarchy is in fact better for the people it allows the crown to actually do what politicians can't. And this is the importance that when you have a monarch, a constitutional monarch, yes, popularity helps them, but they are guided. There are certain limits on their powers. And the queen was able to say, right, I am a constitutional monarch. I cannot give you laws. I cannot administer justice. I cannot lead you into battle but I can give you my heart. I can give you a lot more than what any politician could. And along with me comes a thousand years of our national story and a thousand years of education that has got us to where we are. So politicians, sometimes we don't know them. Sometimes we know too much about them and exactly who they are. Uh, but we don't ever really know what we're going to get with a politician. Whereas with our sovereigns, we know exactly who they are from from the day they're born. We know what they're about. We know their personalities. We know whether they're going to actually work for the people. And this is where Her Majesty actually succeeded. She didn't set out to be popular. It was never about that. But she came into a world dominated by men. The last 70 years have pretty much been a woman's world in the United Kingdom when, when you think about the Queen. And that just continued to push her forward. Women had something to aspire to. And then when we had the first female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, it was absolutely extraordinary. Things like that didn't happen. 
you have a queen who is head of state, but now you have a female prime minister, head of government. What has happened? So the popularity of the queen sometimes was okay, sometimes it excelled, but sometimes those numbers came down. And we saw that, especially around the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, for reasons that might or might not be fair, only history will say. But the Queen, before she died, was living at the height of her popularity. After 70 years, she had not only been the daughter of a nation, but also the mother of a nation, and eventually a grandmother of the nation. And this is why we mourn, because that popularity, for as much as we want her, it's that legacy of popularity, but also her desire to leave things better, that prompted her to ask us, to say to us, please, the love you've shown me all these years, please show my son. For his wife, for her service and duty, I would like her to be queen consort. These are my wishes. And how can you say no to that? Someone we've loved, we've known, who's served us all of her life. The only sovereign that most of us have ever known. And it was so delightful to see when the king came to Buckingham Palace yesterday, just how the crowds took to him. People kissed him. People applauded him. They sang God save the king. Uh, and it just goes to show that the popularity of the queen will never be diminished. But monarchs come and go. The British crown is forever. You, you alluded to it just a, a couple of seconds ago, because when you talk about King Charles III, now he's been officially proclaimed. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, there are things that are associated with that. Uh, there is the Queen Consort, uh, Camilla, and all of that. And there were those, uh, I was having a discussion yesterday with those who were familiar with the story, and they were saying, look, all this is happening, but that the, there, is a, there is a bit of a shadow of uh, Diana, Princess of Wales, in the background of all of this. And uh, as you also pointed out, it was one of the low moments uh, for the Queen um, in her reign, because at that point in time, uh, she seemed to have a bit of a, a, a difficulty reconciling what was happening with what she needed to do. Could you take us through that? Because quite a lot of people don't know what it was that transpired then, uh, beyond the fact that it appeared as if the Queen uh, was temporarily uh, uh, blindsided by the activities or the actions at that time. We are talking about August uh, of 1997, so uh, uh, quite a while back. Yes, yes, and, and it's, it's very ironic that this year is also the 25th anniversary of Diana's death. So when we look at this situation, one has to stop and, and put away the media headlines of that time and say, what is it that actually happened? Because before Diana had died on that evening, the 31st of August, 1997, she was no longer an HRH. She was her Royal Highness. She was no longer a member of the Royal family. She was a private individual. And the Queen saw it that way. The Queen didn't see it that way as Elizabeth the person. She saw it that way as Elizabeth the monarch, the head of the Royal family the crown itself. There's two very different things at play here. First, Elizabeth the person. Secondly, Elizabeth the crown. 
And this is where people were actually confused themselves because they said, where is our queen? Why isn't she here? Why isn't there a flag half-mast at Buckingham Palace? Uh, there is never a flag half-mast at Buckingham Palace. The only flag that has ever traditionally flown above royal residences are the royal standard or the standards of those of members of the royal family who are in their own homes. So this recent, I say recent, from 1997 sort of idea of a flag above Buckingham Palace at all times, when the sovereign is not there, they decided it would be the union flag. But there was a lot here that people said, well, clearly the queen doesn't care. Clearly the queen didn't like Diana. She hated her. Not true. And the queen was actually in Diana's corner for so much of the troubles of the Prince and Princess of Wales at the time, Charles and Diana. But asking the queen and demanding her to come down from Balmoral where she could once, for the first time in her life, be Elizabeth the person, Elizabeth the grandmother, over duty. Inevitably, we went ahead and died for her blood. Where days. are you? You shouldn't My be looking after those two boys. You should be down here in I London, you helping your country and your people through their grief. Well, that confused a lot of people. That day was not very much a British day. Emotions were running high. It was almost as if the British public weren't British anymore. But it confused the Queen. But wh why do I have to go to London? I'm not understanding. These people didn't know Diana. I, I need to look after my family. I am the head of my family. I need to look after the heir to the throne, Prince William. I need to look after his brother. I have to be a grandmother. Something tragic has happened. And she was taking a very human aspect, a familial aspect, in saying, I just want to put my family first. And wouldn't it be quite something that we couldn't even let her do that? The British public, fueled by the media, the headlines were horrible. They were atrocious. They made her feel as if she was the most hated woman in the world at that point. And people were angry. They needed an outlet to blame. They needed someone to go against and say, why is this happening? This isn't right. Because they couldn't point anything on the prime minister. They loved him. They had just elected him. Yet Tony Blair was going to shake up everything. We love him. So we couldn't actually go after him and make him the bad person. Well, who, who would be next in line? The person who protects us, the person who loves us, the person who represents us. And they often say you hurt the ones that you love the most. And that's what the British public had done to Her Majesty in, in that year of 1997. And it was unfortunate because all of that was fueled by headlines that made the public more emotional. And most of the public, the majority of the British public, don't know the protocols. They don't know the ins and outs of, of the way things are with the crown, the monarchy, the government. Uh, the symbolism of flags, why certain ones don't fly at half-mars, why there isn't anyone at Buckingham Palace, why there isn't a certain way that most people think it should be done. Because if people understood the way everything worked, it would take the magic and mystery out of monarchy. But it's that same double-edged sword, if you will, that actually caught the Queen, and it cut her deeply. They said at one point during those days leading up to Diana's funeral that one in four wanted to abolish the monarchy. The Queen has never, ever 
seen or felt such uh, not hatred but a dislike or disapproval of her throughout throughout her entire reign and i think it was very unfair the way the papers painted her and the way that history will also remember that time in her reign let's come to the present now uh long live the new king uh king charles the third uh has just been formally proclaimed uh, many people don't know the processes. Uh, many of us uh, are witnessing this uh, for the first time, both within and outside uh, uh, the United Kingdom, because the last time this happened was 70 years ago. Um, so this is all quite new. Uh, the Ascension Council met. Uh, it was televised. The last one wasn't uh, 70 years ago. This one was. Uh, and um, one is wondering, uh, at this point, what do you think is ahead of King Charles III? He has big shoes to oh. fill. He has very big heels to fill. <laughs> it's, uh, it really is something because the crown is not in a state where we would say everything is going to be bliss in the court of King Charles III. We have Jamaica looking to leave as a realm to become a republic the same as Barbados did last year under Her Majesty. Uh, we do have a lot of personal family strife, an issue within the family that the new king is trying to sort. And we saw that in his speech to the nation and where the he did acknowledge uh, his second son, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex. Which have now passed to uh, what he's going to see is possibly a recession within his country, financial issues for people all up and down all four corners of the kingdom during the winter. Uh, there's a lot that we are going to be facing, not only with Brexit still looming, but with the Northern Irish protocol. Financially, we don't know what the markets are going to be either. Right now, with the, the looming energy crises, the war with, with Russia, the there's so much that is variable, that is changeable. But what he's going to do, things he can do, such as continue to champion the environment, to make the United Kingdom the best it can be, to be there to guide his subjects to the best of his ability, uh, that will be straightforward. He has already gone through the motions of letting people know the type of king he's going to be, what people at home can expect of him, what the dominions, the realms and overseas territories can expect from him, and what the members of the Commonwealth states can expect from him. But there's so much now that has a big question mark over it that I'm not really sure we even know what he will be able to do. I don't think the British government even knows what it can do when the question marks are actually presented in front of us with facts. But looking into the crystal ball, we will see King Charles III make good on what he has already wanted, what he's told us he wanted to do. Slimline the royal family, showing us the future of who the heir is going to be, what the family is going to look like, the composition of his reign. We already know that he is not going to change too much because I think a lot of his reign in the days that he had left God willing, something to the effect that he said, that he was going to continue to reign in the memory of his mother, which is so very important. 
He said now he can't give us as much time as he did before as Prince of Wales due to his new duties, which means he can't get involved the way he used to. He can't be political. He can't write and petition ministers. He can't champion causes the way he used to, which, as the Prince of Wales, he could do so much more than he could as monarch. His hands are in sense now being bound by duty, by the restrictions of being the monarch. His freedoms are no longer available to him. So in that short speech was a plethora, a long list of the way things are changing, not only for him, but for all of us who are subjects. In that, you referenced it when you when we were talking earlier on about when the queen became sovereign. She was 25, but she had Sir Winston Churchill, probably one of the greatest British men alive, as prime minister at the yeah. time. He was at the height of his popularity, extremely experienced in governance, constitutional, and all other issues, and so he could guide. Uh, now, yeah. uh, King Charles III is getting to be sovereign at the same time as a brand new prime minister who, uh, who entered government only 10 years ago as an MP. Uh, and so she too is feeling her way through. Uh, does that complicate things, you think, uh, in terms of the guidance that a sovereign could normally expect, a new sovereign could normally expect in how things are done, both within Britain uh, and with the component parts, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and then within the Commonwealth. Um, the Queen, you know, had quite a great deal of this guidance from uh, Winston Churchill. I'm not too sure that uh, King Charles III can expect the same from Liz Truss. No, it definitely not. Uh, we'll get into the Prime Minister in just a moment because it's important that we understand that the Prince of Wales was, well, King Charles III was Prince of Wales for over five decades. So unlike the Queen, who didn't have much time as an adult to learn from her father, King Charles had decades to learn from his mother the greatest statesperson the world, in my mind, has ever seen and will never see again. So to draw upon 50 years of knowledge, experience, example, I think it's the new prime minister who is actually going to turn out to be on the better receiving end of this relationship with her new sovereign, because he does bring 50 years of his own experience in learning from Her Majesty's 70 years of experience to the table. So what, what we are now witnessing is an older king who has now come to the throne, a more experienced king, a very modern king. He was championing things in the 70s and 80s, such as organics and sustainable living, well before it was popular. So he has his finger on the poles. He knows what's going to work and not going to work, but he only has that by by the grace of God in being who he was under the sovereign Elizabeth II, because there's no greater teacher, there's no greater example to learn from. So what he's bringing to the new prime minister is invaluable, incalculable, uh, just knowledge and experience. 
And considering the way that she came in to greet him, she's going to need as much guidance and support as possible. She was the rock on which showing up in green with a very shallow courtesy, I think might be more towards her earlier Republican leanings at the beginning of her political career than as she is now as prime minister. So we we will have to watch this very intensely and very interestingly to see exactly how this relationship between our new king and our new prime minister plays out. But we only have a few short years left before a general election. So we will see exactly who is better or worse off when that comes to be. Of course, uh, it, it's worth remembering that uh, Liz Truss started out uh, at uh, 17 or thereabouts as a liberal Democrat seeking the abolition uh, of the monarchy. So um, the transition that has taken place between then and now as acting as uh, uh, the sovereign's prime minister uh, will also be quite interesting uh, uh, to watch. Yeah. But you it isn't always only... tell a Republican by the shallowness of the curtsy. Well, I'm sure I, 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 I'm sure that she would her attention would probably have been drawn to that, and uh, probably uh, some kind of uh, correction or adjustments will be made in the days to come. But it's not only Charles, uh, that is King Charles III, who is making a transition here. You alluded to it earlier on when we were talking about Diana. Uh, um, Camilla is, in fact, probably going to be the one who is making the most of a transition here uh, from being mostly behind the scenes uh, and then slowly emerging into public life uh, beside uh, then Prince Charles and now taking on the role of Queen Consort. Uh, the, 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 the change that will be required of her over the next couple of weeks and months and years uh, both as a companion to the king and in her own right as Queen Corset uh, will be formidable, wouldn't it? Yes, yes it will. This is a transition that is extraordinary, to be honest with you. This is something we've never seen before. Uh, most people were not at all fans of the Queen Consort Camilla. Uh, they blamed her for the breakdown of the marriage of the then Prince and Princess of Wales, Prince Charles and Diana, Princess of Wales. But I have all the time in the world for Her Majesty Queen Camilla. Uh, this woman entered the royal family, literally almost the most hated person in the world. People were horrible to her. They actually threw stale bread rolls at her tried to poke her through the window of her car when it was in motion, saying a horrible, hateful things. But she smiled. She carried out her duties with dignity, with grace, never once complaining, uttering a word, never saying that she didn't want to serve the public, ever. She wanted to be by the side of the man that she loved, and if that's what it took to do it, she would put herself in a compromising position in order to be where she was then and where she is now. She has put up with so much, but Her Majesty knew that as well. And for the years of quiet service of the 17 years that the King has been married to his Queen, we have to look and see exactly what Camilla did over the last 17 years. And it was so much so that she was actually created the Companion of the Order of the Garter, which is the most senior order of chivalry in Europe goes back to the, the, I think it's Edward II or Edward III who actually created this. And the Queen made sure that 
she installed Camilla rightly in her own right and not as just the wife of the future king at that point in time. But also look at the decorations that the queen bestowed upon Camilla. Look at the orders that she belongs to. But also, more importantly, look at the endorsement. We wouldn't be calling Camilla the queen consort had it not been for the queen actually saying, I wish, my only wish and last wish is that Camilla be known as queen consort. That speaks volumes of somebody who was not approved by the royal family as the correct type to marry the Prince of Wales when they were in love and they were young. This is a complete 180 degree turn from the way the Queen viewed the affair as to where we are today. So when we look at the relationship between the King and the Queen, it is a love story. It is one that might have a tinge of sadness and a tinge of tragedy. But the true fairy tale has come to be with the correct people in the script at this point in time. This is something also that people need to now accept. There is a strange sort of cult of Diana. If you will. They will never forgive Charles. They will never forgive Camilla. You ruined the life of a beautiful 18-year-old girl. Well, there's so much more, and this is a story for later, as to why things turned out the way they did. What we're looking at now is absolutely something we've never seen in history. The king was able to marry his, his sweetheart, who is now going to be and is called Queen Consort. This is something that is absolutely extraordinary, and I wish, of course, the king as much luck as I can, but more so for the queen consort, because she will still come up against a lot of, of unjust and unfair thought, and a lot of history will throw it from people who do support Diana, and Diana's claim to be where Camilla is now. Uh, so my heart goes out to her. This is not something that she would want for herself. She is where she is out of love, but it's never been about her. It's never been for her. She was happy for things to go on the way that they were, so the spotlight wasn't going to be on her. It's not ever what she wanted. So for Camilla now to have to take up the role as queen consort, she's going to need as much luck, love, and support from the public as we can give her. Given that uh, situation as it is, uh, perhaps I can uh, then go forward and ask you about those of us who are looking at this situation from the outside in, if you like, uh, those who are in the Commonwealth, uh, those who are in the broader society, who know the Queen uh, largely from afar and saw uh, someone who was good to look at, as a model of how uh, people in authority and in power should be uh, are. Uh, and now we're, we are also undergoing this transition, uh, as it were. Uh, what do you think uh, Charles plans, that's King Charles III, that will also take some getting used to, uh, uh, King Charles III's uh, plans will be uh, for uh, the Commonwealth of Nations. Uh, he has been someone with very strong opinions, as you pointed out, on the environment, uh, uh, among other issues, climate change and all of that. 
but now as sovereign, he's got to kind of put a lead on that. What can we expect at the Commonwealth level uh, from the new king? Yes, very, very important, number one, is that the leadership that was given and provided by Her Majesty, that will not change. Uh, the new king, Charles III, will carry on with the Commonwealth in a very similar style and way that Her Majesty did. We have to remember that the position of head of the Commonwealth is not hereditary. Just because there's a new sovereign, that doesn't automatically mean that they're going to be the head of the Commonwealth. And it was just a few years ago at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting that Her Majesty appealed to all of those there to accept the Prince of Wales as the next head of the Commonwealth if she were to pass. And it was a vote. Uh, the new king was actually voted when he was Prince of Wales to be the future leader of the Commonwealth. Now, again, this will have to take place later on in his reign, if and when the time comes that right. he might want my to say, power. look, uh, my son and heir, the Prince of Wales, Prince William, uh, I feel should be carrying on the work and the legacy and the apolitical position as leader of the Commonwealth. Uh, that will have to come to a vote. But it might also be years down the road that the Commonwealth could say, no, we want this to be an elected, finite sort of term from those amongst the Commonwealth heads of government. That could happen, but uh, only the future holds the answer to that. But what we are looking forward to is the strong links between the king and the Commonwealth carrying on as if nothing has ever changed. We have lost Her Majesty. That is a great deep of sense and loss for all of us around the world. But the Queen is dead, long live the king, and so forth for the Commonwealth. Nothing will change as far as the way uh, that the sovereign reveres the Commonwealth will actually help to fill any sort of issues or problems that arise. And this is the strength of having someone who is apolitical in a position that can actually sort out the issues between Commonwealth governments, Commonwealth leaders, as the Queen had done so often over the last 70 years of her reign with building the Commonwealth. So much so that she even fought with her own prime minister when Margaret Thatcher wanted to suspend South Africa from the Commonwealth. The Queen said, what good will that do? Everyone's struggling. I've helped to build this organization. Why would you do that? That could be lessening trust in my position. And I've pledged my life and my service to all of these people. So the Commonwealth is very well looked after in someone such as the British monarch because there is vested interest there. There is a lasting legacy there now, and the king will want to carry on that legacy that his mother built and provided in the way that he actually interacts and helps to nurture the future of the Commonwealth. Before I let you go, I, I, I must ask this final question, and, and that has to do with the coming coronation. Uh, um, of course, that cannot take place until the Queen's funeral takes place. And we understand that the Queen's funeral will be in a, a couple more days. Uh, so perhaps you could give us the kind of atmosphere that would attend uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, uh, funeral. Of course, uh, 
already we have seen that some of the countries, the traditional allies of, uh, of the United Kingdom, their leaders are already making uh, preparations to be at the funeral uh, even before the palace releases uh, the details. Uh, I know that I read uh, that U.S. President uh, uh, Biden's uh, staff are already making preparations uh, for his attendance uh, at the event. Uh, you know, at, so what what can we expect from Assuming that? Assuming he's invited, indeed, and and he, and his predecessors as well, uh, who are, who are still alive, uh, all all, all want to be there as well. Now, is it, it, it? What are we to expect from that funeral? And then perhaps. Uh, what can we then expect to happen when it is finally, that may not happen for quite a while though, uh, for the coronation, the formal coronation to take place? Yes, the, the coronation will be uh, uh, quite a bit after the funeral of Her Late Majesty because we have to give enough time for everyone to grieve. There is seven days of royal court mourning that will occur even after the Queen is interned in the crypt at St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle. So there still will be mourning happening after it's all said and done next week. The funeral of Her Majesty will be the largest that we've seen. The last true, huge, proper state funeral uh, that we saw for, let's say, Winston Churchill was absolutely astonishing. But when we look at royal funerals and we look at the Queen Mothers and we look at Diana, Princess of Wales, they are going to fail in comparison to the grandeur of just the magnitude of people that will be coming to pay their respects to the late Queen. Of course, you can expect British pomp and pageantry, that circumstance to be on its finest show, because nobody puts on a spectacle like the British. It's in their DNA, it's who they are. But this sort of of a production, I'm going to say production because it is, this is all sorts of parts that need to work together to make this show happen. It is the military, it's all of the charities, it's the government, it's actually the church involved. Uh, there's so many different aspects that need to come together, and especially with the rehearsals, the Metropolitan Police, the crowd minders, everything that's going into this funeral. All of those plants, which the operation was known as Code London Bridge. And when they announced London Bridge is down, London Bridge has fallen, which indicated that the Queen is no more. All of those funeral plans went right into action. And the plan, which now had to start in Scotland, is just following exactly how it was laid out years and years ago. So the feel, the mood will be somber. For those of us who truly loved and understood who the Queen was as a symbol of the United Kingdom constitutionally, we have to celebrate what we had for 70 years. So as much as we would want to be sad, that's not what she would want for her people. She would want us to look forward in Thanksgiving for the celebration of her life. Now, when we look forward into Thanksgiving that we have someone such as King Charles III, who has come to the throne, this coronation is going to be very different than those that we have seen before. It was only his mother's coronation that was the first ever televised, but there were certain aspects of that coronation which were not seen by those watching the television, such as the anointing of the song. Uh, that was thought to be 
too sacred to show the people, to show the public on television. Uh, the church was adamantly against it. So we have to also look at the church itself. Uh, the king is the defender of the faith, one singular. And the king has said multiple times in his uh, tenure as Prince of Wales that when the day came, he wanted to be the defender of the faiths, which would help to actually bring, solidify, and unify all of the faiths together so he could properly be a representative of all his peoples and their respective religions. So I think when it does come to the coronation, of course, the, the pomp, the pageantry, the formalities, uh, who's invited, who's not invited, where it will be, uh, whether the king decides he wants it to be an all-out world spectacle, so every world leader needs to be there, will there be processions, all of that, or does he want to be more low-key? a tinge of austerity, depending where we are as a country financially when the coronation actually comes to pass. So there could be a lot that is very different that we see from his coronation than we saw from the grandeur of his mother's, because at that time, in 1953, the country was coming out of austerity. The country had been decimated by war, by having to ration everything. And it was the first time that the country could come out together and party and have something to celebrate, such as the new queen in that coronation. And there were so many iconic uh, memories and photographs and stills that came out from the queen's coronation that I hope we will see from King Charles III's coronation, because it would be a shame if we let so much of what makes the magic and mystery just fall to the wayside. Indeed, uh, Thomas Mace, Arkham Mills, thank you so much. And um, we look forward uh, uh, to those events as you outlined uh, the same magical. Thank you for your time uh, today on the program. Thank you so much for having me. That's our program for today. Thanks for watching. I am Ladi Akiri Dunwale. Our social media handles are on your screen in case you want to give us feedback on what you've just watched. Other episodes of Newsnight. You can go to our podcast. It's on channelstv.com. For now, goodbye.